Hey, good morning, 11 o'clock. How are we feeling today? We doing good? Well, it is good to be with you, whether you're here in the worship center where you're joining us over in the Ridge. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. If you're here for the first time, special welcome to you. We're glad you're here, and we hope the Lord meets you in a new and a powerful way. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to go right into our time of teaching. So if you would, if you'd open up that program you got on your way in, inside that program is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. Also a great tool to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive right in. Father, as we've been going through this journey of pursuing God, as we've been deepening our ability to develop a one-on-one relationship with you, continue to remind us that the goal of this journey is transformation. That is what you desire to give us, to transform us at our core of our being, to transform us in our heart and soul, to transform us so that we will continue to be more and more like your beautiful son, Jesus. And so, Father, as we open up your word this morning, we want to thank you that your word is one of the primary tools you use for transformation. We want you to give us a new vision of who you are and how you see our lives through your word. We want you to give us a new vision for how we are to develop this rhythm of relationship with you. Father, as the communicator, as I often say, may I become less, and may you, as the Christ, our King, become more. May you become more famous this morning. May we walk out of here dwelling on your word and what you had to say in each of our lives. Father, I don't need to pray to ask you to speak because you already are. As your church, we are committing that we are here to listen this morning to what you have to say. We commit this time to you, Lord, in your son's name. Everybody set. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to continue this series we started a few weeks ago called Pursuing God One-on-One. And again, if you're brand new, not only am I excited that you're here, but this is a really exciting time to be joining us at Rocky Peak. Now, the heart behind this series is something that we say often as a church, and that's that God has an epic vision for your life. And what's beautiful is that this epic vision is not reserved for the elite. This epic vision is not reserved for the best of the best, but God's epic vision is for you. It's one for all of humanity, and his vision is bigger than simply us being saved so that we can go to heaven one day. But the reality is God's epic vision for your life is that you would be completely transformed at the core of your character to be more and more like his precious son, Jesus. And so we experience the transformation of God by being in the presence of God. And so as we've been talking through this series, the story of the Bible is really the story of the presence of God. It starts off with how we were created to be in his presence how through our sin and rebellion we lost this presence and how because of God's great love through Jesus he initiated a rescue plan so that we may be saved and restored to now be back in in his presence. But also we've been looking at the truth that this pursuit of God is a two-way pursuit. God initiated it through Jesus and now because of the death and resurrection we are transformed and now we are able to follow 
follow God's example and pursue his presence on our own. And we experience his presence and transformation in a number of different ways. We can experience it in a large group like this, such as a weekend service. We can experience it in a small group that many of us gather in throughout the week. But the number one most important place where you can experience the presence and transformation of God is in your one-on-one relationship with him. And so this series and the life group study has been focused on developing a rhythm of regular relationship with God. So then so far the last three weeks, Michael has been talking about the big picture and he's been talking about your why. Why would you want to develop a rhythm of relationship? Because that's our starting point. We need to answer that question first. What would happen to your life and your relationships if you developed that rhythm? What would happen to your life and your relationships if you didn't develop a regular rhythm with God? And as Michael said, said in the video, we're now transitioning to a point where we're going to begin rolling up our sleeves and start to look at the practicals of how to develop this rhythm. So over the next three weeks, we're specifically going to be talking about the Bible. In the two weeks to come, we're going to be looking very much at the how. How do we roll up our sleeves and how do we begin to read, interpret, and apply the Word of God in our lives? But today, as we begin to talk about the Bible, we need to talk about that why again. And so I want to ask you to think about a rhetorical question. If somebody were to ask you why as a Christ follower you should develop a regular one-on-one rhythm with the Word of God, how would you answer that question? How do you answer that to yourself in your life right now? See, my guess is that a majority of us would answer it along these lines. Some of us would say, well, we should because it's important. Okay, well, what does that mean? My guess is some of us would say, well, we should because it's the right thing to do as a Christ follower. Okay, there's truth to that. What does that mean? My guess is some of us would answer it, well, we should. It's important because it helps us grow. Okay, what does that mean? And here's the truth I have found in my life, and I'm sure is a truth that you can relate with. Last week, Michael talked about the fact that if we don't have a compelling and honest answer to our why we want to spend time with God, we're never going to do it. And what I have found is that a majority of Christ followers viewing the word as simply being important or being the right thing to do or even good for us is not a compelling enough reason. And the reason I know that looking at my life and the life of others, because we are not regularly in the word of God. We don't have a regular rhythm of relationship. See, as Christ followers, we engage in many disciplines to be in the presence of God. Beautiful things where we pray, where we gather together with the saints to learn, where we worship, where we journal, where we walk in silence, where we enjoy creation. But the majority of Christ followers, if you were to ask them, are you regularly spending one-on-one time with the Lord? The answer more often than not is no. When I think about all the years that I've been in life group and I think about how many times I have shared with my life group, I know I should be in the word, but you know what? I'm not. I haven't been. When I think of all the many times I have heard that said by somebody else, I know I should be, but I'm not. And it leads me to a second part of that question there in your note sheet. Do you have an epic vision for scripture? Here's what I mean by this. We need to ask ourselves a tough yet an honest question. 
If you are not regularly in Scripture one-on-one, why are you not compelled to do so? If you are not regularly in Scripture one-on-one as a Christ follower, why are you not compelled to do so? That's a tough question, isn't it? When I first asked myself that question in reflection, it hurt to think about. But understand, we cannot grow if we are not honest about our starting point. If we are not honest about where we are in this moment, we can't listen and follow to the direction God has for us. And the reason I ask that question is we might be able to answer it in different ways to say, well, I'm busy, or I don't understand it, or this and that, but I think it all comes back to vision. I think for many of us, we are not compelled to be regularly in the Word of God because we do not have an epic vision for the Word of God. Because we may say, well, God's Word is important, but how you can gauge if that's true in your life is in three key areas. Is it important enough that it permeates your thoughts? Do you think about the Word? Do you reflect on the Word? Is it in your inmost being? Second thing is if the word is important, is it a key part of your schedule? Do you make it a priority in your day or your week? Do you plan around it? Third thing, if we were to say the word is important, does it affect your actions? Do you live differently because of the word? And I think for many of us, we don't have this image of the word as being that because while we think the word is important, we often view it as simply being a good resource. Let me illustrate it this way. So almost 20 years ago, I worked retail in a bookstore. Remember when those existed? And working in a bookstore, I got very familiar with the different genres and sections of bookstores. And one of our biggest ones at the store that I worked at was the self-help or the self-improvement book. And if you've ever walked into one of those sections or looked at that section at Amazon, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different authors from different experiences, different walks of life, and they're telling you good suggestions for how to be, quote, a better person, right? Whether that's in your health and in your weight, whether that's with your family or how you manage your money or your goals in life, they're good suggestions, but the majority of us, maybe we listen to some of it, maybe we apply it, but we view it as these are good ideas, but we can take it or leave it. And the truth is for so many of us, that is the view we have of scripture, that we see it as a collection of helpful stories, that we see it as a collection of good suggestions. But we also believe that as Christians, we can thrive without it. And so for many of us, Scripture is important when it's needed. Often Scripture is the only, we only go to Scripture on the 911 call when we need it or in my arrogance when I need to prove somebody wrong with it. (laughs) Another way that we show our low view of Scripture is that we allow somebody else to do the heavy lifting of Scripture. I don't spend one-on-one time with it because I go to church. They're gonna tell me what I need. I have a life group leader who's gonna tell me what I do. And if you think about it in the sense of food, why do we eat? To nourish, to give us the strength to do what we've been called to do in life. And many of us as Christ followers are completely satisfied with the fact that when it comes to scripture, we eat maybe once a week. And we're okay with that. See, and the core issue with that is that is not 
how Jesus views Scripture. That is not how Jesus taught Scripture. That is not how Jesus submitted himself to, Jesus, to Scripture. When we look at the value that Jesus placed on God's holy word, he didn't see Scripture as a collection of good stories or as good suggestions for how to be a better person, but he saw scripture as a primary means to experience the transformation of God in our daily lives. What's amazing is if you look at all the people that God called in the Bible, from the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, from Jesus and his disciples to the early movement, the early church, none of them viewed scripture as occasional or optional, but they all viewed scripture as absolutely essential to encounter God and experience his transformation. I like how N.T. Wright puts it there in your note sheet. Scripture has never in any major part of the Christian church been simply a book to be referred to when certain questions are to be discussed. Reading and studying scripture has been seen as central. Would you underline that? Put a box around that word central to how we are to grow in the love of God how we can develop the moral muscle to live in accordance with the gospel of Jesus, even when everything seems to be pulling us the other way. And so the reason why we're starting with this as we spend the next three weeks talking about the Bible is that if we as Christ followers are gonna develop a regular rhythm of one-on-one -on -one relationship with God's holy word, it is absolutely essential that we begin by allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our vision for what scripture is and the role it plays in our lives. Now, before we jump into our scripture for the day, I need to address a very real thing. There are many of you here that truly love the Lord, that desire to seek the Lord, and then when you hear these teachings about being in Scripture regularly, what you feel is an immense amount of guilt. You feel like a failure. You feel inadequate for various reasons. Maybe it's because you've tried spending time with the Lord before and you didn't understand it or didn't know how to get into it and you just weren't able to do it. Maybe it's because there have been times where you have been active in scripture, but you have left that time and it's been months, if not years, since you opened up the Bible by yourself. And often there's that voice in our head that says, you're never gonna be good enough. This isn't for you. We think that God is nothing but disappointed because scripture should be in my life and I'm not using it. Hear me very, very clearly, Christ followers, that there may be a holy conviction going on in your life, but the truth of God is not to guilt you. The truth of God is not to shame you. God's vision for you is to experience transformation. And so the reason why the Lord wants you to experience his word regularly is because he loves you and wants to transform you beyond your wildest imagination, and scripture will do that regularly in your life. And so this message is not one to wag a finger and to point, but is to let you know that whatever your starting point, today is a new opportunity for God to expand our vision and for this to be a turning point with how we use scripture in our lives. And so with that, Let's go ahead and go to our passage. There in your notes, you got a section titled The New Paradigm. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna go to the New Testament, the second half of our Bible, and we're gonna be in the book of 2 Timothy chapter three. And as you're turning to 2 Timothy, first let me set up a little bit of context. So the second half of our Bible, what we call the New Testament, many of the books in the New Testament are a collection of letters that are written to specific people, written to specific cities, or written to specific churches and Christ followers, and we call these letters epistles. 
Now, 2 Timothy is one of three epistles, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, that we commonly call the pastoral epistles. They were written by the Apostle Paul. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's writing to two key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. He's writing to Timothy and he's writing to Titus. And it's very much a great exercise in leadership development. Now, as he writes 2 Timothy, there's a couple things you need to know happen culturally. One, the movement of Jesus, which has been spreading, is now experiencing significant persecution. It is experiencing significant hardship. It is dealing a lot with false teachers that are coming to the churches and taking people away from the word of God. So Timothy himself is in Ephesus, helping to strengthen the church against that. Secondly, Paul has been imprisoned once again. And this time, Paul is aware of the fact that he is going to die very shortly. So in a sense, as he writes to Timothy, this is a last will and testament. This is his handoff to Timothy. Now, the third thing to know is that Paul and Timothy had a very deep friendship. In fact, Paul viewed Timothy as a son. And so as we read through 2 Timothy, his tone is very parental in this. His tone is very personal. But what we're going to see in our strength in our section of scripture is that he's going to tell Timothy that to stand strong as a Christ follower, to stand strong as a church against hardship and suffering, you need to be rooted in the word of God. And so with that, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 3 starting at verse 10. The apostle writes, you, Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, isn't that the feel-good takeaway that you wanted to hear today at church? One beautiful thing about scripture is you can't ever accuse it of not being honest. Verse 12, in fact, again, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse 13, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worth, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, let's stop right there and unpack what's happening. So what Paul is doing as he writes to Timothy is he's recalling to Timothy Paul's own life. He's recalling Paul's own experiences. Timothy has been a close, close, close companion with Paul. And so in that, as Paul has served the kingdom of God, Timothy has seen Paul at his best and he has seen Paul at his worst. Timothy has seen Paul deal with successes. Timothy has seen Paul see lives be changed by Jesus. Churches start, people repent, people proclaim the name of Jesus. Timothy has also seen Paul deal with enemies, has seen Paul experience failures, has seen churches fall apart over infighting, has experienced Paul being beat and imprisoned for the name of Jesus, has seen Paul get annoyed and frustrated with people. And so Paul isn't bragging about his experience, but he's reminding Timothy that in the ups and downs, in the good and the bad, what makes all the difference in the world is the presence of God. 
See, when he says that God delivered me, it doesn't mean that God spared him from hardships. It means that God never abandoned him, that his presence was with him always. And so he's telling Timothy, when we deal with hardship as Christ followers, remember the presence of God is what keeps you firm in your foundation. If you've been with us the last several weeks, Michael has been using the phrase that to develop a rhythm of relationship is training for transformation, right? And so using that language, Paul is telling Timothy, when you experience hardship and suffering or when you experience victory and success, remember your training. Remember your pursuit of being in the presence of God. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, If you are a long distance or a marathon runner, full disclosure, I am not a long distance or a marathon runner. I'm not even close. My arteries are happily filled with Diet Pepsi and pizza, and I'm okay with that. (laughs) But I have friends who are, and I can learn from their experience. If you're going to run something like a marathon, a marathon runner usually goes under a strict training regimen to prepare to do it. And if you would ask a marathon runner why they're training, the majority of them are going to tell you they're not training to survive the first mile. Generally, they're training to survive mile 17 or 18, that point in which your body begins to rebel against you, that point in which your body suddenly realizes this was a bad idea. <laughs> And everything in you is screaming, stop, stop. And they will tell you what makes the difference between quitting and succeeding in your goals, your training. And so Paul is exhorting Timothy, stand firm in your training, meaning stand firm in your pursuit of the presence of God. And he talks about these false teachers, a specific problem, and often these false teachers would come in with this message of Jesus plus, meaning, oh, you want to be saved? Well, you need Jesus and you need something else. Paul wrote to the church in Galatians that they had these people called the Judaizers who were telling Gentiles, oh, you want to believe in Jesus? Great, but you also need to be circumcised or else you're not going to go to heaven. You're not going to be saved. And Paul is reminding Timothy, stand firm in your training, stand firm in the presence of God, and he's going to then remind him, you will find the presence always in God's holy scriptures. Let's keep reading, verse 14. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Would you first underline the word learned and then would you then underline the words convinced of? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Would you underline that? The holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is telling them, remember your knowledge, remember your training, and how it revolves around the presence found in the word of God. And so here's what I love about this. First of all, let's look at those first words I had you underline. What you have learned and what you have been convinced of. Paul is painting a picture of the sum totality of a person. Jesus said something similar, mind, heart, body, and soul. And so it echoes what Paul said in the book of Romans, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. See, head knowledge alone does not lead to transformation. Transformation. 
There's a lot of people within the church and out that have knowledge of Jesus, that have knowledge of the Bible, but until that turns into transformation in our life, it doesn't lead us anywhere. And so Paul is exhorting him, remember what you have learned and have become convinced of. And then the second thing is remember also who you've learned it from. What I love this is Paul invokes the people that have taught Timothy about Jesus through the word and how they weren't perfect, but how their lives were transformed because of the word of God. And what's fascinating about this is that Timothy was one of the first of what we call a second generation Christian. Timothy was one of the first that was raised in a household that from a young age, he was taught the scriptures, the Old Testament pointing to the risen Jesus. And what's amazing about this, and Paul reflects on this in another part of his writing, is that what we know is that Timothy came from a mixed-race marriage, that his dad was a Gentile, not a Jew, and we don't have any record of his father ever believing or professing in Jesus. But we're told by Paul elsewhere that Timothy was raised in the believing in the scriptures of Jesus by the women in his life. He had a Jewish mother and a grandmother who had come to believe in Jesus. And through that, they had raised Timothy with the scriptures to see that the Old Testament points to Jesus. Now, I wanna do a quick sidebar here. I brought up this point back at the New Year and I said this then and it needs to be said again. Moms, there are some of you here that are the spiritual leader in your family. Whether it's a single parent household or whether in your marriage you are the Christ follower and your spouse is not. And you often wonder if you're making a difference. Let me tell you that you are making a kingdom impact by raising your kids with the truth of Jesus through scriptures. If it wasn't for your work, if it wasn't for your hardship, dealing with hardship, if it wasn't for your effort, our world would not have had somebody like Timothy. So thank you for what you are doing and the Lord is honored through it. But again, Paul invokes these images because he's saying the word changes lives. It transforms. Remember the lives of the people that have taught you it. It actually mattered. It changes their lives and it makes you wise for salvation. Again, that's a bigger meaning than just going to heaven. To be wise for salvation is God's epic vision to be totally transformed so that we take on the core character of Jesus. And then he will go on to give a very clear explanation as to why scripture is so key in our lives. Verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Would you put a box around that? Would you highlight it? Arrow, stars, happy faces, anything that draws your eyes to it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, let's stop right there because this is a massive statement with significant implications for our lives today, but also for our eternity. And if you've grown up in the church and you've been familiar with this verse before, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit shows you a bigger depth of what is meant through this. Because many of us, when we have seen that verse before, we take it to mean that God wrote the scriptures. And yes, that is true. God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired the different authors over the different thousands of years on the different continents that 
wrote our scriptures. But understand, Paul is talking about something much, much bigger. He is talking about the fact that for God to breathe into the scriptures means that he did what only God could do, and that is give the scriptures life. There in your note sheet, I like how the author of Hebrews puts it, for the word of God is alive and active. See, this echoes the language of creation. In Genesis chapter two, when God is creating Adam, it says that God breathed his life into Adam's nostrils. And so God breathed life into the Holy Scriptures. And so what does that mean? That now means that he has given the Scriptures his presence. And what comes with the presence of God? His authority. And I want you to write that word down, authority, because that is the key word for our message today. What does God and only God have the authority to do? To give life. What does God and only God have the authority to do? To transform life. Think about the authority of God. Only through God's authority could he create the universe. Could he create the world we live in? Could he create us as a human race? Only through God's authority could he reign as the sovereign king over all of creation. Only through God's authority could he save a human race that rebelled against him. Only through the authority of God could he forgive us of our sins and resurrected us and give us new life in this world and the next. Only through the authority of God could he conquer sin the devil, death itself, could he die on the cross and rise again three days later? That is the authority of God. And the authority of God is not separate from his presence. When we are in the presence of God, we are under the authority of God. And it is through his authority which he transforms. And so the fact that scripture is God-breathed means that as we engage with scripture, we are engaging in the presence of God and we are experiencing his authority to transform our lives. And then as Paul, as Paul continues, he says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That is not about teaching, rebuking, correcting. That is not about simply following rules. Each of those is an opportunity for transformation. Through his authority, he teaches us more about the truth of who he is, of who Jesus is, of who we are because of the work of Jesus, of what it means to be loved by the creator, of what it means that you are now the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells, of what it means that you have been called to be on God's mission and he will empower you to do so. Through the authority of Jesus, he rebukes us of our sin, and it's painful at times, but understand God's heart. He does not rebuke his children because he wants to remind you that you will never measure up or that you are constantly bad, but God's heart for you is one of transformation. Sin keeps us from transformation. Jesus rose so that you would live in the life, and so when God calls out sin, he is exercising his authority to transform us. Through his authority, God corrects us. Now that involves sin as well, but also correcting us is when our vision is just way too small. 
At Rocky Peak, we often talk about the fact that it can be easy to view God, to view Jesus, to view the Christian life, to view his word through a series of filters that distort who he is. And so through his authority found in the word, he will correct that. And then finally, through his authority, he trains us for righteousness. Now this goes back to the Beatitudes where it talks about that as Christ followers, we are righteous. And hear me very clearly, Christ follower, that when you gave your life to Jesus, meaning when you realized that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the eternal son of God, when you realize that your sin had separated you from Jesus, but that Jesus has the power to heal you and bring you back, when you gave your life to him in a beautiful act of repentance and said, you are now my king and I will listen and follow you, do you know that your identity was completely changed? You went from being a dead sinner to a living, breathing, righteous man and woman of God righteousness is not the elite reserved for the elite christ follower righteousness is who you are the authority of god found in his presence continues to show us that that god died and rose again to make us right in relationship with him and to now go into the world and do right because of him if you see yourself as a failure as inadequate understand that is not how god sees you anything less than an identity of righteousness is not his vision for your life. And then he goes on to say, so that you may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can I ask an honest question? Have you ever felt inadequate when it comes to God? Have you ever felt inadequate when it comes to what you know about God or when it comes to living the life God has called you to live? Gosh, that's the story of my life. And I'm a, quote, pastor, right? I have gone to school for this. I have been trained this. But there's so many times that me, as well as my brothers and sisters, we feel inadequate and understand that God's vision for us is for us to feel confident in who he's created us to be, that God understands we feel inadequate. God understands we feel, uh, we feel that we don't know what to do or how to go into this. But understand that God uh, hears us when we say, God, I'm not qualified for this. And so through the authority found in his presence what he is going to do he is going to train you because your story matters because you come from a unique background with unique difficulties with unique successes with unique insight with unique struggles with unique forgiveness and God has called you out and unleashed you into your daily world to show the people that just as God loves us he loves you too and to unleash a movement and your story matters and he will give Give you what you need to do what he has called you to do well. But we will only be equipped in his presence with his authority as found in the word of God. And so that's our passage. And so with the time we have left, what I want to do is I want to unpack this vision, this epic vision a little bit further. And then look at a couple practical ways in which it transforms us. So if you're following along in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, A Transformed View of Scripture. And this is your fill-in. Scripture has the authority of God. Scripture has the authority of God. And so you probably have picked up on this. But as we've been talking about what God's authority means, I'm sure you've noticed that it's very different than how we as a culture often view and define authority, right? And to fully embrace 
God's meaning of authority, we need to take a few extra steps to remove our cultural filters. Because for many of us, when it comes to this idea of authority, because of how it's been experienced with us in culture, that word and that concept is often not a positive thing. See, generally, I think culturally, we would define authority as either me having or somebody else having power over me or me using power over somebody else. And it can be a mixed bag. We sometimes think authority is positive when they're doing what we want them to do when it directly benefits me, but often the issue we have with authority is when we feel that they are not for me, when we feel that they are not for my ideals, my hopes, my visions, when what they're doing is not directly uh, benefiting me. And for more often than not, I feel that as a culture, that's our view of authority as something negative. And with that, I think culturally, we often have two negative views of authority. The first one is this. The first view is that authority is forced on us. That often the people in authority, whether that's at home, at work, in politics, whatever has it, they took it from us, and I feel like I didn't have a choice. And so, as most things do, it makes you think of Star Wars. And in Star Wars, think of the, think of the empire, right? That's the picture that comes. The empire is very clear, follow us or die. And so for us, that picture often comes, I'm your authority, do it just because I said you had to. Whether you like it or not, I don't care, you need to do it. And so when we think of that type of authority, there's only two responses we have. We either rebel against that authority, and that's where we have those phrases like we rage against the man, or we rage against the machine, or we miserably comply to that authority. And here's an honest truth. There's a lot of people outside the church and even people within the church that that's their image of God. That God is not for me. That God is a dictator that wants to impose an outdated, strict set of rules that don't make sense. That all I want to do is live a happy and productive life and it feels like God is going not on my watch. And so what we need to do is we need to move away from that image of God. So that's the first negative image of authority. The second negative image is even though many of us have had negative experiences with authority, it's something we want so that we can prove we're better than other people. We crave authority because we think it's going to make us special because we think it's going to unlock meaning and purpose. We think that by able to lording this over, it's proof that I have made it and I am better than you. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you grew up with siblings? So, I'm the youngest of three total. I have an older brother and sister, and I have three kids of my own, so now I see this in both ways. If you grew up with siblings, you knew that every day was guerrilla warfare. (laughs) Do you remember those old pictures of Sears that the family would take together and everybody's in their tuxedos and smilings, those pictures were a total lie. That's not a family. The picture should have been them fighting and yelling and frustrated parents and one sibling tying the other one up because that's what it was really like to grow up with siblings. And when I think about my siblings, the thing we fought more often than not over was authority. Who had to listen to who? Who was in charge? And so I remember arguing with my siblings all the time that my brother would be like, you have to listen to me because I'm the oldest. And I would respond with, no, you have to listen to me because I'm mom's favorite. And I'm the third born, that is scientifically proven. (laughs) 
Or we would also fight and then we would create territory in our homes. Did you ever do that with your siblings? We would plant flags. We would take tape and cross out certain areas. We would adopt appliances like the refrigerator, the television. And so we became the sovereign leader of our territory. And we told you, do not enter my airspace. You will start a war. Or there were times when one sibling, often the oldest one, was put in charge because your parents needed to leave the house, right? And almost always, and older siblings, you know this to be true, they abused their authority. (laughs) My wife talks about this in her household. Her older brother demanded that they refer to him as sir or captain or king. (laughs) He would make them do things like get me water, get me a snack. If not, I'm going to tell mom that you didn't follow orders. And so even though we can often be negative on it, it's something we want. But again, like I mentioned, we crave a cultural definition of authority because we think somehow it will make me a better person. To put it in spiritual language, we think that authority in our hands will somehow transform us. Now, having authority is not a bad thing in and of itself. In fact, God has called many of you to a position of authority, but the danger is when we idolize authority to do what only God can do through his authority. And so as we take off that filter, again, we go back to what it means that God has the authority to create, God has the authority to transform, and immediately God's authority is for our benefits. God uses his authority to create a new creation in us. God used his authority to resurrect us. God used his authority to give us heaven, not just at the end of life, but to bring heaven down to us now. Through Jesus, the kingdom has come. God uses his authority to give us hope, to stand firm in the trials and the storms. Even if we don't have the answers through the presence, the authority found in the presence of God, we know that he is with us. God has given us the authority to hope, through his authority, the ability to hope, not twiddling our thumbs in a, I hope this works out, but in a tangible hope through the presence of Jesus. And this is why for Paul, this was so important as he taught this young leader, if you are going to do life well, if you are going to experience transformation regularly, then you need to stand in the word of God because in the word of God is the presence of Jesus and there is no separating his presence from his authority. And when we come into his presence, we come into his authority and his authority will always change us. There is no such thing as being in the true presence of God and leaving the way we came in. He will always transform us because he is the only one that has the power to give life, to give it to the full, and to make you more like his precious son, Jesus. See, I love the gospel of John as it starts. It talks about the authority and the power of Jesus. It refers to him as the living word. And it's there in your note sheets. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, over, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
He continues to say, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. We have seen the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Look at the next scripture I put there, Matthew 28. Jesus states, all authority, would you underline that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so when we expand our view of what scripture is, when it goes from being a good resource to being the presence and authority where we experience the presence and authority of God. The question goes from being, why should I, to how can I not? I like again how N.T. Wright puts it. The authority of scripture, when unpacked, offers a picture of God's sovereign and saving plan for the entire cosmos, dramatically inaugurated by Jesus himself, and now to be implemented through the spirit-led life of the church, precisely as the scripture reading community. The authority of Scripture refers not least to God's work through Scripture to reveal Jesus, to speak in life-changing power to the hearts and minds of individuals and to transform them, underline that, and to transform them by the Spirit's healing love. Scripture has the authority of God. And so before we wrap things up, what I want to do briefly is I want to look at two practical ways in which scripture transforms us. Now, as we go into these two ways, I'm gonna keep it very surface level because the next two weeks are gonna focus on each of these two in more detail. But what I wanted to do for the time we have left is I just wanted to begin the dialogue. So there in your your note, you have a section titled Transformed by Scripture, two key areas. So the first fill-in is this. We are transformed by discovering what is in scripture. We are transformed by discovering what is in Scripture. And so simply put, we are transformed when we encounter what Scripture actually says and we, when we learn how to read it in its proper cultural, emotional, and spiritual context. Now, there's different groups of us here this morning. There are some of you here, there are many of you here that truly love the Word of God. You dwell in God's word. It is an important part of your life and your walk and you have experienced how it transforms and you can't imagine life without it. But then for the rest of us, we often find ourselves in what I would say one of two groups. There's some of us that find ourselves in a group that for whatever reason, we are new to the Bible. Maybe we're new Christ followers or we just have never been in it, had the opportunity to open up. And so what that means is we find ourselves as the people that genuinely don't know what's inside scripture. And I think about my own upbringing. I had always heard about the Bible, but I didn't for many years have an understanding of what it was. In fact, I for many years believed that the Bible was a cover-to-cover literal book of rules. I kind of understood that there were 10 commandments in there. And so I just assumed that the Bible was all about the don'ts. This is what you don't do or else you're gonna anger God. And I remember the first time I was exposed to the fact that there were actual narrative stories as well in Scripture, and that blew me away. And then as the years went on, I got exposed to more that not only were there commands, not only were there narrative stories, but there was art, there was poetry, there was music, there's prophecy in Scripture. Not only that, as I continued in that journey, I began to see that the people that God called in Scripture were like me. See, I knew there were people in the Bible, I had heard names like David or Moses, and I assumed that they were these spiritual superheroes that never did anything wrong. 
And as I began exposed to their real stories, I found out that many of them at times were colossal failures. And yet God still used them despite themselves. I began changed by seeing what was actually in Scripture. And so if that's you, if you're in that camp of, I genuinely don't know what's in Scripture, you're not a bad person. You are not a bad Christ follower. You are at the beginning of a beautiful journey. And it's a journey you're not alone in. We are all going to do this together. See, how you learn what's in Scripture is by joining us here by joining a life group, but also by developing that one-on-one relationship. The Holy Spirit will be your teacher. He lives in you and will show you how to see what's in Scripture. That's the first camp. The second camp would be the people that are more familiar with Scripture and the ones that often give in to the temptation to assume they know what Scripture says, to assume they know what it means. These are what I call the skimmers that they have just enough knowledge to be arrogant about it. And in my narcissism, that's often the camp I find myself in. That you hear these timeless teachings of love your neighbor and your internal attitude is, I get it. I've heard this before. I get it. Love my neighbor. I get it. Be compassionate. I get it. Be a good spouse. I get it. Have integrity. I get it. I get it. And that comes from pride. That comes from ego. See, what happens when we are in the assumption category is that we, it keeps us from not only being in Scripture, but it also makes us numb to Scripture. The type of people I would illustrate is these are the people that won't ask for directions even though they're clearly lost. And so if you find yourself in that category, this is an opportunity to be a turning point for you as well. This is an opportunity for you to tell the Lord, I need you, Holy Spirit, to refresh my eyes, to refresh my heart, to give me a new passion for the word, to reteach me these timeless truths, to remind me that your word never comes back void that I have, not, I have not arrived as I arrogantly think I have, but I'm on a beautiful journey with you through your word. So that's the first transportation. Again, we're gonna talk about that a lot next week. The second one is this. We are transformed by submitting to scripture's authority. This is obedience. And in two weeks from now, Michael is going to focus heavily on why it's so important to obey Scripture. Because if Scripture is going, if the authority of God is going to transform us, that means it is going to change things about our lives that are deeply held. Scripture is going to change the authority of God, deeply held sins, the way we view the world, what we think right and wrong is our priority. And at times, those will be gentle or exciting changes. At other times, it's going to feel like surgery. (laughs) But remember why God does it for transformation. I put a word, I put a verse from Jesus in your note sheet there from the book of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, 
Now, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. That specific verse is about adultery. But one thing that you see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus says this phrase over and over again. You have heard it said, meaning you have believed this, either because you thought this made sense, because your soul's culture or society thought this made sense, because of your upbringing, because of your successes, because of your hurts, because of your failures. For whatever reason, this is how you have seen life is done. Now, I tell you that that is not the way of the kingdom. And so the authority of God found in scripture is the authority for God to come into our lives to say, Dre, this is what you have believed, but now I tell you. And we need to get, we need to understand the fact that when God is calling us in scripture, when he talks about sin, when he talks about transformation, he is not speaking in the general. He's speaking to us directly. See, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I have no problem when I perceive God to generally call out sin. I have no problem when I perceive God to be calling out other people's sin. Where I start to resist and rebel is when God, through his authority, calls out my sin. But yet, that is exactly where God wants me to listen and follow because I can either resist and that means I resist transformation or I submit and become more of who he's called me to be. Let me do a brief case study. Let's take the issue of anger because nobody deals with this, right? So this isn't in your note sheet, but feel free to write down this reference. James 1.19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Can we all just agree that as a human race, we are really bad at this? And so here's what God is doing through this time for us right now. As I was preparing this yesterday, going over my notes, I was fully prepared to come and talk about this example in a general sense, in the third person, using a metaphor. And as I was getting ready for this, God's like, nope, let's take a look at your anger and your anger issues. Let's make it personal. And so here's my honest reaction. When I start read this verse, my first instinct was to think about all the other people this needs to apply to. I began sitting there going, yeah, you tell them, Jesus. I can think of a dozen people who need to hear this right now. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become memory. In fact, Jesus, I'll do you one further. I will print this out and slap it on their foreheads because they need to know this. And then God pushed. He said, okay, that may be true, Jerry, but let's start with you. Wait, me? What do you mean start with me? I don't have any anger issues. God, you have anger issues. I'm fine. <laughs> so then God began bringing up certain people, certain groups that I disagree with, certain organizations. And I began to go, okay, but those are, that's righteous anger. <laughs> I have every reason to be right to be angry to them. God, I'm, I'm just doing your work there, God. That's good, isn't it? And God responded with, okay. Hey, what about three days ago? On Thursday evening, when your wife wanted to do a simple $10 home improvement job, and you didn't yell at her, but in your response, in your tone, and in your voice, you treated it like it was the dumbest thing you had ever heard, and you hurt her. Okay, God. You have my attention. What do you want to say? And God began raising a couple questions to me. 
God began asking Dre, when you think of those people that make you angry, those people that drive you to anger quickly, why? What is the root of that? And is there something there I need to transform? God asked me a second question. He's like, Dre, in those situations in which you're right, you are on the right side of anger, in which you are angry over injustice, angry over sin, angry over people that are distorting the gospel, are you still expressing it in a way that is acknowledging the fact that those people were still made in my image, that I died for them, that I love them and aim to restore them as well? He asked me a third question, Dre, are you willing to take this scripture and allow me to rebuke you? Allow me to correct you? Allow me to transform you. Ultimately, what he was asking is, Dre, you say I am the authority in your life. Are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? And so faced with that, I have two choices. I can resist or I can submit and be transformed. Be equipped and be trained through the authority of God found in his presence. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on out. And as we close our service, as we go into this time of worship, my prayer throughout this whole time is that the Holy Spirit has expanded your vision for his word. Not only that, but that the Holy Spirit has expanded your vision for the word in your life. My prayer is that through the work of the Holy Spirit, this morning is a turning point for you whether you're in scripture regularly or you're gonna begin for the first time, that today as you walk out of here because of the work of the Holy Spirit, that you now have a deeper passion, a deeper appreciation. You're ready to roll up your sleeves and say, it's time to get to work, it's time to train, and it's time to be transformed by the authority of God, amen? Let's pray. Father, we wanna thank you for your word. We want to thank you that you have given us your word. We want to thank you that you have breathed life into it. That in the word we encounter your presence, that through your presence we encounter your authority, Jesus. The authority to give life, the authority to transform, the authority to resurrect. Jesus, we want to say that if the word has not been a priority in our lives, no more. We are going to become more like Jesus, meaning we are going to see the word as you see it. Jesus, we are honestly shouting out as a church that we want your authority to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, because it will train us so that we will be thoroughly equipped. Father, remind us that every time we go into your word, we are experiencing the authority to transform our lives. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to make it a deeper thing in our lives. Thank you for being our teacher in this, Father. And as a church, we declare your word matters. Also, as we go into this time, as we receive our gifts and offerings, Jesus, I thank you for the saints that faithfully fund the movement here at Rocky Peak, and I pray that you bless that offering to be used for your, own purpo for your purposes. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Let's stand together, Rocky Peak.